I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. My apologies for the lack of shows last week, but things got a little bit wild and shows were delayed due to Hurricane Ian hitting Florida, where, of course, I am living right now. So, uh, with that in mind, my apologies for the lack of new content last week. Also, congratulations to recent Parallax Views guest. Jillian Lionheart DeCourcy for her big victory at Invicta 49, winning the Adam Waite Division Championship. Kudos to Jillian. It was such a pleasure having her on the show right before her big victory. With that out of the way, let's talk about this edition of Parallax Views. We have a great returning guest, Andrew Basevich a historian, a veteran, and the president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's going to be talking with us about a new volume he co-edited with Afghanistan war veteran Danny Sershin, entitled Paths of Dissent, Soldiers Speak Out Against America's Misguided Wars. We're going to be delving into a number of topics during the course of this conversation, including the story of United States Army officer Ian Fishback, who expressed great concern about U.S. torture and abuse of prisoners. We'll also be talking about the all-volunteer force and the criticisms of it. But I think the greatest theme at play in our conversation 
can be summed up in the way we talk about a certain quote that's become very famous from General William Sherman. War is hell. It's a saying that Professor Basevich says is true, but at the same time insufficient. Because war is not just hell. It is an education, and an often painful one. Which is why Professor Basevich argues we must listen to the stories of soldiers who have become dissenters. So, without any further ado, let's get right to it with Andrew Basevich on Paths of Dissent, Soldiers Speak Out Against America's Misguided Wars. Welcome back to Parallax Views, one of my favorite guests to have on the show. I believe this is his second appearance. Andrew Basevich, uh, editor, along with Daniel Sherson of Paths of Descent, Soldiers Speak Out Against America's Misguided Wars. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you. So, Andrew, if you could, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, your background for listeners that um, may not have heard our, our last conversation together and uh, how this book came together. Well, I'm, I'm now a uh, elderly <clears throat> senior citizen, <clears throat> once upon a time a soldier, once upon a time an academic, now uh, in my uh, retirement years uh, focused on writing. This particular project came about as a result of a conversation between myself and Danny Sherson. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a veteran of Vietnam. Danny served in both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And the result of our conversation was we thought it would be a good idea to put together a collection of essays by Iraq and Afghanistan veterans who in one way or another had become dissenters, you know, who, who spoke out against the wars in which they served. And the book you referred to called Paths of Dissent came out about a month ago, uh, is the final result of our collaboration. If you could, I, I really like that at the beginning of the book, you talk about what we mean by military dissent, because it's not necessarily a someone who opposes every single war or uh, someone who uh, starts a mutiny. That's that's not what we mean by military dissent in the context of this book. So what do we mean by military cons, uh, military dissent within the context of paths of dissent? Yeah, our, our aim was to allow a variety of voices to be heard. Uh, got 15 essays in this book, 15 veterans. Some served in Afghanistan, some in Iraq, some both. Some seriously engaged in combat operations. Some in non-combat roles, they were basically witnesses, close up, intimate witnesses to the war. So there's a variety of perspectives here. Uh, but all of them in one way or another reached the conclusion there was something fundamentally wrong uh, with these wars. Wrong perhaps because they concluded that all wars are evil, all wrong because they concluded that 
these wars were unnecessary, or perhaps they concluded that these wars may have been necessary, but they were so wildly uh, mismanaged uh, that they felt compelled to speak out. So the point I'm trying to make is that for a potential reader, this is a book about military dissent. It is not a book that presents a uniform perspective. Uh, there's uh, various perspectives on offer. If you could, why do you think we don't hear more about um, military dissenters um, in, in our culture at times? And I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I was just looking at a, a Pew Research poll from 2019 that uh, basically found that roughly seven in 10 Americans, uh, 73% say that good diplomacy is the best way to ensure peace. Um, and I, I think it's interesting because sometimes when we look at the media, um, I, I'm not sure that we get that impression that there's so many people, um, not just in the military, but in civilian life that uh, think war is, is probably the, the, you know, that's the last resort and it's probably the worst option. I think in a lot of ways, um, it seems like that doesn't make it as much into the media sphere, the, the sort of anti-war or the skeptical of a U.S. foreign policy outlook. Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not competent to uh, speak on behalf of all of our fellow citizens, but it does seem to me that in recent decades, I guess when I say that, I mean uh, since the end of the Cold War, many Americans have come to see military power as our strong suit. That when, when there is a task that must be undertaken, uh, a task of great importance, then the best way to take that matter on is to send in the troops. It, the issue could be one of uh, pursuing the vital interests of the United States, or it could be uh, the humanitarian concerns. But uh, if you want to get it done, Many Americans have come to believe the troops are the answer. Uh, unfortunately, not only is all of history, uh, does all of history contradict such expectations, but even our own recent history, our own recent experience with wars uh, contradicts that. And again, the testimonies in the book, I think, uh, reinforce that. Uh, you know, the pointing out that wars almost always, I'm tempted to say always, but certainly almost always, end up entailing far greater costs uh, than anybody expects going in, and almost always yields consequences that differ wildly from what the architects of the war have themselves expected and what they, they promised would be the outcome. Uh, and sadly, it tends to be the soldiers on the front lines who suffer the consequences. What do you think, and, and again, maybe this is outside of your expertise, but what do you think has led to, I don't think we always hear from the, the dissenters within our media ecosystem. Um, what do you think has, has sort of led to that where I, I think you're doing a very important job, along with Daniel and the contributors to the book, in showing that there are these dissenters uh, within the military, but we, we don't always hear from them. Do you think there's just uh, a stigma where, you know, uh, where we're so bombarded with this idea of you can't question the wars because that would be 
uh, going against the troops. You know, we have that line, support the troops. Um, so what do you think uh, has caused this sort of, I think, muffling in some ways of these uh, voices that are dissenters? Well, dissent is relatively rare. Uh, obedience, compliance are the norm within the military. And quite frankly, we should be grateful for that. Uh, again, referencing my own uh, service in Vietnam toward the latter part of the war, uh, the army in which I served was coming apart at the seams. Uh, and that was really ugly. Uh, so, so the fact that dissent is relatively rare is actually, is probably something to be applauded at the same time those rare voices from within that do speak up and register concerns about war, about a particular war, about a, the way a war is being conducted, I would argue, deserve to be heard. Just because you hear a voice, of course, doesn't mean you have to concur in what's being said. But, uh, but if, 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 if there is no uh, willingness uh, to listen to dissenting voices, then as a, as a practical matter, the architects of the war get away with it. <laughs> you know, the, the people who promised that this war was going to lead to a quick and easy victory or it wasn't going to cause very much, uh, they get away with it. If we could, I know the book is dedicated uh, to Ian Fishback. Maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about him. And I was uh, very touched by what you wrote about him in the intro, because I know uh, you had initially called upon him to maybe contribute, uh, but you know things didn't exactly work out. And uh, I, I think it's a very interesting story, the one of Ian Fishback. So Ian was a, uh, a young West Pointer uh, serving in Iraq, uh, who who witnessed detainee abuse by American soldiers, the abuse of Iraqi detainees by American soldiers. And Ian, who I, had, I never met, I had, and he's recently deceased, I never met, as a good soldier felt obliged to speak up, to inform his chain of command that, that, that misconduct was occurring, and he was blown off, and he refused to be blown off. And he went higher in the chain of command, and he was blown off. And finally, he felt compelled to take his concerns to the press and to civilian politicians, most notably uh, to Senator John McCain. And it was taking this complaint to McCain that finally generated real attention, ultimately, the passage of legislation that outlawed the kind of misconduct that, that, that uh, Ian had, had witnessed. So as a courageous act on his part, a lonely act on his part, because he was going against what everybody else wanted to, to look the other way, uh, sadly, uh, very sadly, uh, Ian became, I'm not, a, I'm not a shrink, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, uh, but came to be possessed by some kind of demons that uh, essentially destroyed his life. And so not long before this book uh, was, uh, was published, uh, he, he passed away at, at quite a young age. And 
Danny and I decided that uh, dedicating it to Ian was uh, just the right thing to do. He was a dissenter. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's interesting too because he sounds like someone that was uh, conflicted in a way with regards to you know on one hand he he really seems to believe in these ideals of of America uh, that sort of that's what sort of sets him on the path of dissent. Uh, but then I guess he sent you uh, the piece that wasn't uh, publishable in Passive Descent, where he, you know, just sounds very angry, saying, you know, America is not free, and um, you know, talking about the Constitution and um, hypocrisy in America. But at the same time, he seems uh, very um, influenced by, I guess, the ideal or the the spirit of America. Uh, what role do you think that plays in in dissent um, within the military? This idea of uh, an American ideal, the ideals of freedom and democracy. Oh, I think I think a very a prominent role. Uh, I'm just pausing here for a moment, but, think, but I, I think without exception, the contributors to this uh, volume, in one way or the other, believed believed in America, and saw in our military policies a failure to live up to the ideals that we profess, much much as Ian had in his way. Um, again, they express their dissent in different ways, coming from different points of view. But I, th I think there is that sort of common basis uh, that there is right, there is wrong. Uh, and and when, when things that are wrong occur in the course of conducting a war, somebody needs to speak up. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your experiences with Vietnam, but before we do that, uh, since a lot of this book deals with the experiences of dissenters from the global war on terror, uh, and you have many great contributors, including uh, Kevin Tillman, Matthew Ho, were there any uh, contributors that really stuck out uh, to you that maybe touched a, a very specific chord with you uh, that you hope readers will get something out of, you know, that will touch them in the same way? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I hope readers will read the book uh, and, and judge each of these contributors or contributions uh, on their own. I would simply emphasize that this is not a one size uh, fits all uh, series of essays. Wide variety of, of background of the individual, uh, wide variety of service experience wide variety of of people's the way people responded and you know what got under their skin uh, what what caused them to say this is unacceptable uh so i mean the honest answer is no i don't i can't think of one that stands out i think that they're i think that they're all uh, worth reading okay you know a couple of these folks uh were my friends uh before the book uh some even to this day, I never actually have met face to face, although we've, you know, exchanged uh, text to edit it and, and so on. So in terms of your experience um, with Vietnam, could we talk a little bit more about that? What, what sort of uh, set you on your own path of descent, I guess? Well, I don't think it was Vietnam so much uh, as I stayed in the army after Vietnam. I stayed in the army till 1992. Uh, so I, I was a quote-unquote career soldier. I think what, what set me in a 
set my thinking in a substantially different direction was the way the United States responded to the end of the Cold War. Uh, in a very vague way, uh, I had thought that, well, since the Cold War is this great emergency, when the emergency ends, not that I ever anticipated it would end, but when, if, if this emergency ever ends, then the United States is going to become a normal nation. And to my mind, that meant a nation that puts less emphasis on maintaining a large, powerful military establishment and putting it to use. Well, guess what happened? After the Cold War ended, U.S. policy became more inclined to intervene. So you, you, you look at the post-Cold War era, uh, which basically began uh, way back in December 1989 with the U.S. intervention in Panama, now totally forgotten, and then followed with a, a long series of interventions, mostly in and around uh, the, greater, the greater Middle East, sometimes categorized under the umbrella of the global war on terrorism, but almost uniformly, to my mind, uh, inadequately justified in terms of strategic or moral purpose, and quite frankly, badly mismanaged, uh, leading to costs and consequences that were, were terrible. Uh, some of the co contributors to this book, uh, they're, they're all affected in one way or another by the wars in which they served. Uh, some of them were badly damaged. I mean, they, they were, became casualties. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the people who are shot who are casualties. There are all kinds of casualties. Yeah, I was going to say, I believe that Matthew Ho actually writes about this idea of um, moral injury. That That's correct. That a soldier can face. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, that, uh, uh, you know, he, again, he should speak for himself. But, but to me, the, the, the concept of, of moral injury is that as a result of participation in a war, uh, you, you witness, perhaps uh, experience uh, events that damage or shatter your own personal sense of how the moral order is supposed to work. Uh, and that can be, to put it mildly, I think, disconcerting. It can also then have secondary effects on the way you yourself view the world, respond to the world. Uh, Matthew Ho, I think, is an example of somebody who, whose, whose life was uh, very badly uh, damaged as a consequence of what he saw and what he experienced. And he's by no means uh, unique in that, from that point of view. It's interesting too. I, I know you said that you weren't like a, a dissenter during Vietnam, but you do in the book um, take a very strong stance when talking about Vietnam. I think at one point you say that, you know, to characterize Vietnam as, you know, a mistake or a tragedy um, is like an understatement almost. Uh, you come out and sort of say, you know, it's ultimately a crime. And I, I'm just wondering 
how did your views evolve on that? Like how and why um, why is calling it a mistake or just a tragedy sort of an understatement? Why should we speak more strongly about wars like Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan? Well, I mean, I guess the key point here is my views evolved over time. Uh, when I was still in the army, uh, I wouldn't have called Vietnam a crime. I would have probably called it something in the order of uh, you know, an un unfortunate error. Uh, so part of my personal uh, intellectual evolution, again, mostly triggered by the end of the Cold War, caused me to come to a different point of view about Vietnam itself and to judge the war more harshly than I would have, let's say, 30 years ago. Hence, my judgment, which is indeed my judgment that it was that it was a crime, uh, attributable to all kinds of reasons, I think, but but primarily attributable to the <clears throat> civilian and military leadership over the course of several presidential administrations uh, that uh, you know, out of arrogance and hubris, unwillingness to acknowledge mistakes, just blundered on with catastrophic consequences for our own country. And although we tend to forget it, uh, catastrophic consequences for a whole hell of a lot of other people uh, in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. So um, I guess in some respects, one of the reasons that I wanted to, with Danny, uh, to put together this book is that it is, in a way, a uh, uh, an in an indirect way, uh, a, a way to take a second look. I think uh, at Vietnam, uh, even though nothing in the book is about Vietnam directly. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think um, at one point in in the introduction that you write, uh, you talk about how, in many ways, rather than learning from Vietnam after the Cold War. Um, we almost seem intent with our foreign policy in repeating uh, the mistakes of Vietnam. Oh, it's so true. And I must admit, you know, you and I are speaking uh, uh, when the uh, full fury of the Ukraine war is, uh, is underway. Uh, and I think that one of the effects of the Ukraine war is to provide elites an excuse to forget about the Iraq and the Afghanistan war. Uh, and that too, I don't know if that qualifies as a crime, uh, but it certainly qualifies as uh, terrible and unjustified. Also, one aspect of the book that I find really interesting is um, the, the sort of uh, conclusion where you talk about an experience you had on Veterans Day and uh, your reaction um, to that sort of Veterans Day experience you have with, uh, you know, people giving out free car washes and whatnot. And I, I thought your reaction to that was very interesting. Maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about the concluding piece in the book. Well, I think, what would we title it? Uh, the, the, the Cost of Free Pizza or something like that. And I, I, I just, it was struck, struck uh, by Veterans Day, I guess it was now a year and a half ago or so, uh, by the, the hoopla which tended to focus on, uh, you know, giveaways and discounts, uh, ostensibly as a way of 
you know, thanking veterans for their service. I've always been very uncomfortable with this thank you for your service mantra. Uh, but I was became particularly outraged, I guess, uh, at this at this particular Veterans Day, because it just seemed so so easy, so cheap, you know, dishonest. Uh, to in what way is it just because well because he, he said here come on come on stop by the, our pizza place and we'll give you a free cheese pizza uh to thank you for your service when that that sort of ignores uh what what service was about particularly if it's a veteran who served in a war and the consequences of the war and the lingering consequences of the war so how the hell can a free car wash uh, make up for that or, 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 or get to that? And I, I guess also what, why the reaction maybe to the, the whole, I guess, the, the obligatory thank you, to, to, uh, thank you for your service. Like what, what sort of irks you about that in some ways? Well, it's, uh, you know, my, I, I'm a great admirer of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the um, German theologian and, and war resistor going back to World War II. And he described, he came up with a concept that he called cheap grace. And, and, and cheap grace is <clears throat> when people confer on themselves uh, a sense of forgiveness when faced with evil, uh, rather than really confronting it. You know, I think, I think, I personally believe that our post-9-11 post wars have been utterly misbegotten, uh, have done great damage to our country, not simply damage because people have been killed and wounded. I think that the, the political crisis in which we find ourselves, in which people, people openly worry about the survival of American democracy, but whether the constitutional order is going to be able to make it to the next presidential election. I personally think that not entirely, but to a very considerable extent, that's the result of the stupid wars that we've uh, in, in involved ourselves in. And it's, it's not enough in response to that. It's not enough to say to veterans, stop on by and we'll give you a free car wash. Um, there is a requirement to civic obligation to engage with the recent past, maybe the more distant past too, but the more re on, on, on military matters with the, with, the, with the recent past, if there's any chance of learning from them. Uh, and, you know, you can't help but be struck by the unwillingness of the American people to engage, to, uh, you know, to do that. You want to move on. What do you think the connection is between, uh, I would say, the failures of, of the global war on terror and the sort of crises that we're seeing today? I mean, I, I think we see massive polarization in our society. I think people are very concerned about the fragile nature of our democracy. And I do think a lot of it has to do uh, with the wars. And I mean, I, I hope this doesn't seem like a, a shallow analysis, but I think uh, wars like the ones we had in Iraq and Afghanistan um, were acts of imperial hubris. 
And I think that they ultimately have led people to really, you know, not have faith in our institutions. I think the institutions betrayed our trust in a lot of ways. And maybe that's led to this kind of polarization and distrust of our institutions. Well, I think you just summarized it very accurately. Now, one, one would have to emphasize that it's more complicated than that. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't believe that even had there not been an Iraq war, I don't think that American democracy would be in, in a healthy state today. I mean, there are these other factors. For example, uh, you know, economic inequality, you know, a rich nation that has such a large percentage of its citizens that are struggling uh, in an economic system that does indeed help the rich get richer, uh, but also deprives opportunity to, to a lot of other folks. Uh, that, would have, that would have been a problem even if we'd never uh, invaded uh, Iraq. Uh, I think that in the cultural and religious realm, uh, there have been conflicts brewing for decades that for reasons I'm not sure I am clear on are now coming to a head. And I think, I think the Supreme Court decision on abortion was a, an event that did just that. So it's not simply that stupid wars have brought about a great, maybe unprecedented, at least nearly unprecedented crisis. But a number of factors have converged, one of those factors being stupid wars that bring us to where we are today. And again, I'm repeating myself, but, you know, offering veterans free pizza on Veterans Day does not offer an adequate response to the crisis that we uh, that we're dealing with. There's just a few more things I wanted to cover here. I know that you talk a little bit in the book about the all volunteer force. Um, and it's interesting. I had uh, a few months back, I had a guest on, I believe you're familiar with him, um, Major uh, Dennis Leach, who, who has written a very scathing criticism of um, the all volunteer force. Yeah, General, Major General Yes, yes Major yeah. General uh, Latch. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about the all volunteer force, um, its history, maybe some of the criticisms that could be made of it? Because I do think, uh, in some ways, the all-volunteer force, I, I think civilians now don't think about war the same way. It, it's seen as an issue they don't really have to think about. They can focus on other things. And uh, I do think that's created problems no, no, in some no ways. No doubt about it. I mean, it, you know, ain't my problem. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not involved. Other, other people go fight. I don't. And, and I, I give them free pizza. And then I, I feel okay about it. So, yeah, General Leach and I disagree on a variety of things. But... I think we're on the same page in saying that the, the decision to end conscription uh, toward the end of the Vietnam War and to then embrace this notion of an all-volunteer military, a decision made primarily for political reasons by President Nixon, not, not, not because he thought, oh boy, uh, the all-volunteer military will provide a basis for a, a, a military force that we need just because he was trying to manage the Vietnam War issue, and, and he thought that ending the draft would give him some, some breathing space. Set that aside. Uh, the end of conscription uh, effectively uh, spelled the end of the concept of the citizen soldier. And the citizen soldier from the, from the founding of the country, 
the citizen soldier had provided the principal instrument of national defense. When you think about it, uh, whenever the United States needed to go fight a big war, an important war, we, we rallied citizens to, 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 the, to take on uniforms and, and bear arms. I mean, that was the true in the revolution and in, in the Mexican War and the Civil War, even into the 20th century, where we raised those citizen armies, not by asking for volunteers, but by having a draft. But all along the line, it was the citizen soldier that, that bore the brunt of the fighting. We had a regular army, but it was a small regular army. You know, I went to West Point, and in West Point, there's something called a battle monument, uh, and and that that is a monument to the regulars, meaning to the career professionals, who fought and died in the Civil War. And this, remember, the Civil War, we had uh, what close to uh, half a million dead. Uh, battle monument has, I think, several hundred names on it because the regular army was very small. It was the volunteers from Massachusetts and New York and New Jersey and Ohio that, that fought the war and, and saved the Union. So Vietnam leads us to abandon the concept of the citizen soldier in favor of what the, the founders of our republic would have called a standing army. And one of the results of, of embracing this notion of relying on a standing army was to then create a gap between the military and American society. Support the troops means stand on the sidelines and clap. It means give them a free car wash on Veterans Day. It doesn't entail any kind of an obligation to do anything whatsoever. And that's, that's, what, that's where we have come to be in terms of our operative military system uh, in the, the 21st century. And I think that the global war on terrorism offers a judgment on that system. You know, on the one hand, we say, hey, we got the best military in the whole world. Well, on the other hand, we don't win. We don't get it done. You know, if you look at the, at the, at the outcome of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, it's enough to make you weep. Uh, and it is distressing, to put it mildly, uh, that critics like General Leach uh, don't really get all that much attention uh, because it's easy for us to endorse this all-volunteer system because it doesn't entail any obligations. It puts the burdens on somebody else. Uh, yeah, I guess it does, but that's not good for our democracy. I was going to say, too, in a way... That all-volunteer force, I, I think it can bring class issues into focus uh, in the sense that I know a lot of people that um, joined uh, the military after 9-11 and, and, you know, getting into the Iraq war uh, because, you know, they ultimately thought, hey, this is a way for me out of my, you know, dead-end town or, or this yeah. is a way out of my mm -hmm. lot in life. And, you know, I don't always see the people from, you know, uh, upper middle class suburbs wanting their kids to enlist. Uh, I do think there's people that obviously enlist out of patriotism and whatnot, right. but I think there is a class issue at times at work. 
I think that is absolutely correct. Yes. So uh, just um, a few more questions here. Uh, the first, uh, I, I was just curious because I know you come from um, a, a more conservative background. Uh, how do you talk about these issues to people uh, that are more conservative that maybe have a mentality of, well, yeah, we should use our military might. Um, and I, I think Democrats do a lot of that now too, but uh, how do you address um, these issues to people that haven't thought about the human costs of war that think, hey, you know, we, we should use our, our military might and go Rambo on the enemy? Um, how, how do you sort of try to convince those people uh, otherwise? Well, I think you're putting your finger on it. I mean, it's, a, it's important to remind people of costs. There is, there is, I guess, has been kind of a fiction in a way that in an era of high tech, what we think of as high tech, uh, that that war has become sanitized, you know, standoff weapons, precision weapons, uh, and there is, of course, some truth to all of that. Uh, but I don't think anybody can argue that it's changed the fundamental na nature of war. I mean, we're we're reading about the uh, Ukraine war and the Russians in the Ukraine war. Uh, and there's plenty of high-tech weapons being used. But man, it's obviously an ugly, dirty, uh, chaotic uh, undertaking. Kills not only a lot of soldiers, kills a lot of civilians. Collateral damage in the, who can say how many tens of billions of dollars of, you know, buildings and infrastructure that have been damaged and destroyed. Uh, I think it's a daily reminder, that war is a daily reminder of the enduring nature of war, even in an era of high technology. You also mentioned earlier, um, you know, elites in war. Uh, so I, I guess I think when people hear the term elites, they may just think of the politicians. Are we just talking uh, about the politicians, though, are we also talking about um, the, the media ecosystem? Are we talking about people within uh, the sort of military brass? What, what do we mean by elites? Well, you know, I'm uh, I'm the president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and a term that we tend to use in our informal conversations is the blob. We refer to the blob as the blob. The blob is a term uh, that a shorthand for a really, I think, the establishment. I think it was uh, Ben Rhodes that used it, uh, one of Obama's I think advisors. He, he coined it. He coined it uh, for the establishment, meaning, yeah, it's uh, it's people who rotate in and out of government in senior positions. And it's also folks in think tanks. And it's also senior military officers. And it's also uh, a certain brand of journalist. And it's also uh, senior corporate executives in the, you know, in, in defense industries, all of whom, uh, and obviously I'm oversimplifying here, but all of whom share a point of view that sees uh, the U.S. possession and use of military power, great military power, uh, as, as good for the country, as even necessary. Wrapping up here, one aspect of uh, your conclusion to the book that I was really um, taken by was you mentioned that quote by uh, General Sherman, um, war is hell. And you say that, you know, on the surface, uh, you know, that that's a pretty good 
uh, assessment of what war is for, for so many people that are affected by it. Uh, but you also say, in a way, it's insufficient. Um, what, what did you sort of mean by that? Well, that it is a, his, his classic statement is, expresses a profoundly important truth. Uh, but war is also a, a source of education. Now, I suppose there are some participants, have been some participations in war who, who return and say, well, that was fun. You know, that was great. But I think there's a far greater number of participants in war that very much would include the contributors to this book who come away having undergone a profound education and a painful education and, and, a, and an education that uh, burns away uh, ideals. Uh, um, is that a good thing? I mean, it's a good thing that comes at great cost, uh, but it probably needs to be acknowledged. And, and I would say that uh, anyone who chooses to take a look at our book, obviously, I hope a lot of people will look at the book, uh, will we'll have a chance to experience what the contributors experienced and, and to, to have some sense of what it was they learned and what they took away from their own personal encounter with war. In closing, since you mentioned uh, Ukraine earlier and uh, the way maybe elites are using Ukraine to say, oh, you know, focus on this thing. Don't focus on the U.S. foreign policy as much now. Um, where do we go from here? How, how do we sort of push back on issues related to U.S. foreign policy and dissent from some of the foreign policy that we disagree with um, in this age where people are saying, oh, if, you, if you're talking about U.S. foreign policy, you, you don't care about Ukraine or, or what's happening with Russia. How, how do you think we can push back against that mentality? Because I know Quincy has done a very good job of uh, yeah, I, pushing I, back I on mean, that. I, it's a good question. And uh, I think one of the keys is in, insist upon accountability, uh, of which there has been none with the global war on terrorism. Now, the Congress has created an Afghanistan war commission, which uh, supposedly is going to provide a you know top to bottom thorough investigation of that entire war. Uh, I don't know when it's going to issue its report. I don't know if the report's going to be you know worth the paper it's written on. But I think that is at least carries some hope that there will be accountability and therefore an opportunity to learn so that the cheerleaders for war uh, kind of just don't get away with it. I just want to say, I think for me, the most important aspect of this book is uh, what we were sort of talking about earlier with, you know, it's not enough to just have a, a cheap celebration where you get, we give people free pizza on veterans day. If we really want to honor veterans, I think we have to do what this book is doing paths of descent. We have to actually listen to the experiences of veterans and their thoughts on war and what they've learned from it, the wisdom they've gained. I agree. And I thank you very much for saying that. And I thank you very much for having me on your program. And I want to thank you again, uh, Andrew Basevich, for coming on Parallax Use. Thank you.
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Basevich. Please be sure to check out his and Danny Sherson's new book, Paths of Descent. Soldiers speak out against America's misguided wars. And also check out the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Andrew is the president of that institute and his work is very much appreciated. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, 